The world speaks of tolerance, but we aren't called to simply tolerate people. We're called to love them wholeheartedly beyond what they deserve. I'm Taylor Drake. I'm Brian Jennings. And welcome to the Echo Podcast. Where we are looking for truth in the noise. And if there's one place that has a lot of noise, it's in the world of politics. Thanks for joining us on this mini-series, Love Your Neighbor Politically, where we are trying to apply biblical commands and principles in this polarizing culture we call America. Thanks for joining us in our second episode of the Love Your Neighbor Politically series. Last week, we looked at the first three ways you can love your neighbor. Judge your own, reject sensationalized fear, and engage before you contend. This week, we're going to look at the next four ways we can love our neighbor politically. But, question, why are we doing this series to begin with? So, I was out in Colorado Springs uh, where... My book publisher had had me out there, and I was signing some books and handing some out, and a lady walked up to me uh, and wanted to visit for a moment, and she said, thanks for the book, and she said, it's been really important for me, and then she got real teary-eyed, and I could tell, like, oh, okay, I need to, like, give this a moment, and she said, I haven't talked to my dad since the election, Whoa. and I, yeah, I was like, whoa, she said, Thanksgiving dinner was alone. Since that time, I've heard a similar story over and over. I've, and I've heard, you know, maybe even worse of parents or grandparents or children or brothers or sisters actually being hostile to their friends or their loved ones who have a political disagreement. And so, uh, and what's even more sad is many of these people have said, we're Christians. And my dad's a Christian and I'm a Christian, but we don't talk to each other anymore. And so I'm like, man, the church, we have got to, to get a grasp on how to love each other and let that love transcend our politics. And I think for us it's really important to recognize that Christ says these are the two greatest commands. You love God with your entire being and you love your neighbor as yourself. But I think that kind of begs the question, who is my neighbor? And most of the time we think of the uh, the young guy who's asking Jesus that question, trying to trap him. And Jesus gives him the story that we all know as the Good Samaritan. But there's a reality that I think we have to address, and that is, who is my neighbor? Uh, I think it's John Piper who makes the distinction that my neighbor is anyone who isn't me. And if we're not careful, we will think that neighbors are the people who live next door rather than the same people who live in our house. My wife is my neighbor. Mm, My children are my neighbor. Now, there may be more intimacy within those particular groups of people, but nevertheless, they are my neighbor. And so as we're doing this series, I think it's important for us to go, these 10 ways that we love our neighbor politically is also 10 ways I'm going to love my wife politically or my daughter or my son politically. So I think that distinction is really important that this is not about us versus them, but it's even inside the family, inside our community, and in the church. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's jump right in to numbers four and five go right together in they how do. to love your neighbor politically. It com- comes from James 119, which says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. So numbers four and five and how to love your neighbor politically, be quick to listen and slow to speak right from the text. How about that? Hey, we can move on to the next one, right? That seems pretty clear cut. <laughs> it is, but let's talk about it for just a moment. <laughs> uh, you know, as soon as we speak about something publicly, 
we are more apt to defend it. That's not true. Uh, it is. I don't it, think it, that's it, true. It actually is. <laughs> and you saying that means that you will defend that even more tomorrow. No, it doesn't. Uh, so uh, there is such wisdom in learning to not speak quickly and just to listen. And man, the times in my life where I have spoken quickly are often the times where I've had to go to someone and with my head down saying, I am so sorry. I was out of line here. And man, the world would be different politically uh, if we just learned to be quick to listen and, and slow to speak. And that has some application probably for some other areas too in our lives, don't you think, Taylor? I think so. One of God's great gifts to us is that he listens. And I, I am always just amazed that the God who created the universe and has all of the wisdom in the world still takes time to listen. Yeah, That says a lot about who God is, and it says a lot about who we should be. So love your neighbor by being quick to listen and slow to speak, and that leads us to number six, uh, which also comes from James 1.19, be slow to anger. And I want to add to that phrase, be slow to anger and smart with passion. So let's start with kind of the anger uh, part of that. Um, when was the last time, Taylor, you saw somebody angry about politics? Uh, me, actually. Recently, <laughs> I was listening to uh, a political kind of kind of debate back and forth from two opposing views on uh, on the radio while I was driving, and I just got really, really frustrated that they weren't really addressing the issues. They kept throwing up straw man arguments, and they weren't providing what I think would have been better answers. Now, that doesn't mean that I have the answers to these very complicated problems, but it frustrated me to no extent that nobody really seemed to be listening to each other. They just kept throwing out these sound bites and these caricatures of what the argument was supposed to be. Um, but they were really passionate and they were really committed to their ideologies and their platform. And it, it really bothered me that they had all this zeal, but man, they just seemed really angry. And you know that that anger that you felt isn't necessarily a bad thing. The Bible would say we submit to the Lord by being slow to anger. Right. So hopefully you didn't like swerve over and ram somebody with your car as you were listening. No, I was at a stoplight, thankfully. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, so we are to be slow. It, it means that we don't have a quick temper. But then the Bible also talks about you know what you do with your anger matters. And there's a way to respond appropriately. And then God says we need to get rid of that anger so we don't hang on to it. Um, and there's so much of our media that prompts us to be angry, and their, their whole way of life is financed by our anger oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And you know when uh, Jesus is preaching uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, you know, gouge it out. If you're, I mean, that's that's graphic. It's, pre it's, pretty, it's pretty graphic. Uh, and I think maybe a little bit of application for us would be is if your right-winged or left-wing media causes you to sin, cast it out. It's better for you to trash your news media than for your anger to trash you. Your neighbors need to be a person of love and joy and peace, not consumed by anger and how we treat them. And so uh, I think that has a little bit of application for us because there's a lot of stuff that gets us revved up and this anger that we hang on to becomes bitter. Do you think that being quick to listen 
and being slow to speak will actually enable us or make us more capable of being slow to anger because we're, we're not trying to win. We're not trying to be right. We're trying to learn. We're trying to love our neighbor. Um, so this be quick to listen and this be slow to speak, how does that help us? Um, if we can unpack that like just in a daily moment to moment situation, how does listening and being slow to speak better enable us to be slow to anger? Yeah. My, my friend, Sean Palmer, uh, who preaches down in Houston said something that I've always remembered. He, uh, he had a deal where he had his church spend the summer going to different people's homes to eat a meal and they had to find people. They were encouraged to find people who were, were from a different political or cultural or ethnic background. And there, he said, there's two rules. Uh, when you go there, I want you to ask a question. And then when they say something that you kind of disagree with or that kind of frustrates you or agitates you or you don't understand, that gets to rule number two. Shut up and, and say, can you tell me more about that? Yeah. And I love that, that idea of just being quiet and saying, can you tell me more about that? Because that's that idea of my goal here is to listen. And I think you're absolutely right because that, I don't have to win. I just want to listen and understand. One of my favorite books is called Tactics. And it says that when you're engaging in conversations with people that you disagree with, and even if you know their stance and your stance, whether this is religion or politics or whatever it is, um, the very first thing that you should do is seek to understand why they have that position and what they think it means. And you do that by asking questions. Yeah. And then the second thing you do when they answer you is ask another question. And then when they answer you, you ask another question because the asking of questions reveals whether or not you're listening. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. So there's kind of a second part to to this um, for number six, be slow to anger and smart with passion. I think, you know, Christians are often very passionate about lots of things and God gave us passion. So that's a good thing. As long as we're, you know, keeping it in the lanes of where God wants us to be. And I want to encourage people to be smart with their passion so that they can actually make a difference Mm. rather than be destructive with that. Can you give me an example of what destructive passion looks like or not not in a grand scheme, but just kind of in our everyday lives? What does unbridled destructive passion, maybe with good intent, what does that look like and how do we deal with it? Yeah, and I'll, maybe I'll give you an example of one that uh, maybe it's not even the difference between destructive and perfect, but just what's, which one is better, sure. which one is more effective. So... Uh, I am pro-life, um, and you know we like to say from womb to the tomb. But you know specifically, when we say that phrase, uh, I would, per, I would want my candidate, somebody that I would vote for, mm-hmm. to uh, be opposed to abortion being legal in our country, um, and I think that's just a uh, something that honors God. So for a large part of my life. Uh, the number one thing on my mind in that topic has been Roe v. Wade. Right. Uh, because that's what I was always told was the one thing that would make the biggest difference with that. So here's what I did not know. Um, and maybe I'll just ask you because maybe you knew this and I and I was the only one who did not. But did, did you know that 
the abortion rate now is lower than it was before Roe v. Wade? I did. Uh, the recent studies have shown that ever since Roe v. Wade, it has been on this very steady but noticeable decline, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah, it, I think it climbed for a decade, okay. but then somewhere in the mid-80s, or look, I can't remember, early to mid-80s, look this up, you can find the stats. Uh, it's been on a steady decline uh, for all that time, which is great. I'm thankful for that. But nothing about Roe v. Wade has changed in that time. Uh, so, I mean, maybe some, there's been some local and state-level things. Right. But Roe v. Wade is still in place, yet the abortion rate is declining. What does that tell us? It tells us that abortions can be reduced even if the church loses some legislative battles. Right. Uh, also, what I've learned is that um, if we were to overturn Roe v. Wade— that does not eliminate abortion from America. That just means states have the right to choose, and the government, the federal government, can't impose its will on the states. So it becomes a states' right issue rather than a federal government issue. So if Roe v. Wade was overturned, the majority of states' abortion would still be allowed, which means that maybe we've focused our attention way too much on the federal level, which is less in our control than in the local level. But even beyond that, uh, I've just been convicted uh, and thought about what if I took all of the passion that, that I've had against Roe v. Wade and placed it for crisis pregnancy centers mm -hmm. and uh, in helping moms who are in poverty or uh, families who are struggling and women who are maybe struggling who think they have there's no way they could support this child because most people do not want to have an abortion they feel like they're trapped into it what if i took all of the passion against one piece of legislation that i have very little control over um, and placed it into actually helping people um, and i don't have to change my position about roe v wade to do that right it just redirects my where i'm spending the majority of my passion in maybe a more productive way. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It, it sounds like what you're doing is that you're actually learning what the legislation says, and you're able to better represent it so that we don't have people who mischaracterize the statement by saying, oh, Roe v. versus Wade, that legalized abortion. No, that's not what it did, but it's a lot easier to think or to remember the soundbite. It legalized abortion, even though that isn't true. Right. So, yeah, I, I'm not trying to make people frustrated if you're against Roe v. Wade. I am, too. I'm just saying let's put our passions where we can make the biggest difference. And, again, that might be with your neighbor who needs diapers um, yeah. because the more we love them now, uh, the less apt they would be to consider an abortion later. Well, it really sounds like that you're harping on what Jesus talks about, which I think is important, that we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but then we give unto God what is God's. And I think it's interesting for us is that God's thumbprint is on everything except that coin that we're going to pay the taxes on. So in, in that kind of thinking of we are for Christ, we pray for Caesar, but we're following Christ. How do we navigate this loving our neighbor politically, but at the same time recognizing that we're going beyond just the kingdom of America, that we're really focusing on building the kingdom of God? And, and how do we obey the rules of the kingdom of God um, while also being good citizens of, of the America? Yeah, uh, I think it's really 
coming back to we are part of the kingdom. We are part of the kingdom. We are part of the kingdom just over and over. But we, uh, we, we don't submit ourselves to the kingdoms of this world because that takes us away from that. So that kind of brings us to number seven. Do we have time for one more? Absolutely. All right. So number seven for uh, loving your neighbor politically is to follow the rule book. And to uh, illustrate this, let me tell you a story from Tony Evans. He talks about how football officials are unique in that their ultimate commitment is not to the teams on the field, nor do they align themselves with any of you know the team's agendas. The officials' obligation uh, do not lie with those who are in the battle or even those watching it take place. Their commitment, as well as their allegiance, belongs to an entirely different kingdom called the NFL office. (laughs) And this kingdom supersedes, overrules, and sits above all others for them. From the league office, the officials have been given a book. They have their own book with the governances, guidelines, rules, and regulations by which they are to manage the event on the field. While both teams are constantly pulling at the officials to choose a side and to call penalties or endorse plays, the team of officials must, in spite of personal preferences or emotions, rule according to its kingdom book. So we would be really upset if we found out that some of the NFL referees were just, you know, hanging out with the coaches and players and looking at their playbook and being like, oh, I like this play. This is a, you should run this pass play. It's really cool. I won't call any fouls on you if you do that. Uh, obviously, they, they would not be honoring what they're supposed to do. And as Christians, we have to remember what our rule book is. Mm. And so we're rooting for the kingdom of God above a political party. Do you like NFL? I don't care. (laughs) This is the body of a reader, so I I look at people like that and I go, I'm not jealous, but. Well, I I grew up in Kansas City, and and the and the football team we we actually won the Super Bowl for the first time in my lifetime. So I was slightly more excited about the NFL last year. It was nice to finally not. Because every other year of my life, we ended the season in disappointment, right? which is the bummer of sports. So I, it, I have one sports joke. It's the only one that I really know. I want to hear it. Okay. The Dallas Cowboys logo is also their rating. One star. One star. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awful, but that, that's the only real joke that I know. Oh, Whether no. it's true or not, I, I think it's funny. Uh, there, there's an interesting passage from Exodus 34 uh, where God – commands the Israelites to not form these treaties with these outside nations. Mm. And uh, when you unpack that, God, that the application is not for America to not form a treaty with Canada or for Tulsa to not partner up with Oklahoma City. Uh, the, the idea is don't form an allegiance with someone who's going to lead you astray and jeopardize your allegiance to the kingdom. And I think there, there's some application for our politics that we don't form a treaty with a political party in such a way that we then feel a pressure to always follow what they say, as opposed to being able to say, no, the kingdom of God uh, demands that I speak out against this political position or oppose this political position, even though it's kind of the party of my affiliation. Let's go ahead and land this plane. Today we looked at the following ways that you can love your neighbor politically. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Be slow to anger, smart with passion, and follow the kingdom's rule book. We are ending five minutes early today so that you can take five minutes 
to just spend some time with the Lord asking, have I given you lordship of this area of my life? And we encourage you just to unpack these four things a little bit in that prayer time and listen to how the Lord directs you. This is where the money's at. Don't miss this time. If you've enjoyed today's podcast and would like to check out my blog or my book uh, called Dancing in No Man's Land, Moving with Peace in a Hostile World, go to brianjenningsblog.com and we would love to see you there. I'm Taylor. I'm Brian. And this has been the Echo Podcast. Where we are looking for truth in the noise. And figuring out who our neighbors are, apparently. Ooh, that's a tough one. It's, it's hard. See you next time. Blessings. <laughs>